0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, finishing out that chapter in our series, going through the book of 1 Peter, picking up where we left off last week. We'll start today in verse 18 and go through verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18 and going through verse 22 this morning. It <clears throat> should be on the screen behind me if you aren't able to find it in time. It says this, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Uh, In Homer's Odyssey, the hero, Odysseus, is navigating in his ship and he comes upon twin dangers, Scylla and Charybdis. One is a huge monster. It kills and devours any ship that comes close enough for it to reach. The other is a mighty whirlpool, a maelstrom, that sucks to the depths any ship that gets too close. And in the open ocean, you might think that wouldn't be that hard to avoid. You might just be able to to sail around either of these uh, dangers that are in his way. But they're positioned on either side of a very narrow passage, a strait, a small corridor of water that the hero has to sail through. They can't be avoided, and it feels like they can't really be overcome as he gets closer. I have to confess, as I was preparing to preach this week, I often felt like Odysseus approaching Scylla and Charybdis. As I read that passage that I just read for you all, I think there are two major, confusing, possibly treacherous ideas in today's verses. I mean, what in the world or the underworld, is happening in verses 19 and 20? And then what does Peter mean when he says that baptism now saves you? These things, they can't be skipped, they can't be avoided. It's my job to preach the text, whatever it is, whatever's next. Going too far into the weeds of either one of these might mean that I leave you all behind in confusion or boredom, maybe. I even asked a few friends for advice this week, and they all told me something different to do. None of them agreed. I read several commentaries and articles, and they all said something different. None of them agreed. Even now, I usually try to avoid talking about the process of me creating my sermons because I don't really think it's that helpful for you. I mean, no one really cares about how the sausage gets made. They just care about the meal at the end of it. But I think I have to prepare you for what we're doing today and hopefully give you the forest before we get lost in the trees in today's sermon. So let me tell you what I think this text is about so that you'll know that and so you'll remember that when we come up on some things that I'm going to have to take some time to try to explain. And I will try to explain what I think is going on in these verses. But I think this text overall, those five verses that I just read, I think it's actually a fairly straightforward explanation of the gospel. It's a fairly straightforward explanation of its glorious message. Yes, it does have some confusing concepts that we're going to get through. But it gets through all those. It gets to all of those through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It starts with his suffering And then it follows the timeline through to his ascension. It's just talking about the gospel. So that gospel of Jesus Christ, that message, I think that's what these verses are about. Therefore, today, what we'll see in this text are three facets of the gospel's message. We'll see three facets of the gospel's message in today's text. And the first facet of the gospel's message from today's text is that the gospel is a message of righteous suffering. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Remember, Peter, in this section of chapter 3, he's encouraging his audience to persevere through the trials that they are facing and are going to face. He told them about the blessings of this life that they've been called to in verses 8-12. through 12, How their suffering serves to defend the faith that they believe in verses 13-17. through 17. And now he's bringing these themes of suffering and perseverance back around to the foundation of the gospel in today's verses. He's saying that the gospel really is a message that begins with the suffering of the righteous. Yes, it's a message of victory, absolutely, but it's victory over and through death. And it's salvation that's given through another rather than being earned in yourself. Those pieces, they're they're all part of the truth of the gospel we believe. And he's reminding them of these facts and relating them to the suffering that they are experiencing and are going to keep experiencing in their lives. The righteous suffering for the unrighteous That's what Christ did when He saved us. Though we didn't deserve it because we were slaves to our own sin, and willingly so, happily so, He suffered in our place all the same. We've seen over the last several weeks that your suffering actually isn't primarily about you. You're not the main character in your own suffering. Your suffering is about Him. It's also about them, whoever they are. You're supposed to bless when you're reviled because that might show them the truth of the gospel. You are blessed when you suffer even then because in your suffering, though you can't see it, there are blessings for you hidden in heaven. You're glorifying him in your suffering because by your suffering, you're showing that what you believe to be true is worth believing and worth believing to be true. But all of these gospel implications for you begin with Christ who suffered for you. And you'll see in the text that he did this to bring us to God. You were the one that he suffered to save. You are the one who has done evil against him and been repaid with a blessing. You are the one who reviled him by failing to worship him. And you've been given words of hope in response. What he went through when he was incarnate, he did this to bring you to himself. So before we get into the weeds or the trees or whatever other metaphor I've mixed together this morning, I want you just to pause for a moment on this idea. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, suffered for sins that He might bring us to God. That's why He did it. That's what He did when He did it. That's all that he's done for you in this glorious gospel that we can see in this text. He did it just so that he might bring you to God. And if he's willing to do all that to bring you to him, what won't he do? And once you're his, do you think he would allow you, who he suffered to save, to then be lost? No. The love of God for you, his people, that is enough to save you and to keep you. He suffered, yes, but he suffered to bring us to God. And he was obedient in that suffering all the way through and to the point of death. Okay, he really and truly died a real and true death, just like anyone else would have. And that just like anyone else piece is going to become really important in a minute. But his obedience and perseverance as a righteous person in suffering, that went all the way to the point of death. There was no additional suffering that was left for him to be able to persevere through. There was no final frontier that he didn't cross in his perseverance. His endurance through suffering, it went further than yours probably will. And I think Peter says this here to be an encouragement to you. He's talking to people who are suffering and telling them to persevere. And he's showing them the lengths to which Christ suffered for them. It's not easy to endure this kind of suffering. It's not easy to persevere as a righteous person who doesn't deserve it. But verse 17 from last week says that it's better. And it is. But it doesn't give any indication that it's easier for you than if you're just getting what you deserved. This is hard. It's not easy, but Christ did it first. So you have his example to follow now. And so now Christ, who is in you, is with you. So you can know as you persevere through it that you aren't alone as you go through the same things that he did. You likely won't have to endure what he did to the extent he did. But whatever it is that he has for you, you can know that he's not sending his troops into battle from the back, but from the front. He's with you in the fight. He has gone before you in the fight, and he's won the victory in the fight. The gospel which saves us when we place our faith, hope, and trust in his work on our behalf, it fundamentally is a message of righteous suffering. Okay, that's how we began in the faith, and that's how we will continue in the faith. But it's also a message of victory over death. That's the second facet of the gospel message in today's passage. It is a message of victory over death. Look at verses 19 and 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. As I said in the beginning, there are, I think, two sticky subjects in today's verses that I'm going to have to explain to you. And these two verses, that's one of them. When you heard me read them, you probably thought to yourself, I have no idea what's going on there. No idea what that's talking about. And let me comfort you that that is how most people read that. That's how I read it. This week in preparing to do this, when I was reading through 1 Peter and preparing for this entire series, my thought was, what am I going to do when I get to chapter 3? whenever I get to the end there. That's how most people throughout church history have had that same experience. This is just one of those passages where we don't totally know what's going on. It's one of those passages where there's a wide range of opinion. So I think before we get into this, we have to have some humility in these spots to say that wherever we land here is something that we can probably be talked out of, and I think that's okay. Okay, we don't have to act like we know everything. We don't have to assume that we nailed every interpretation of every text, and that's actually okay because we know that we haven't nailed everything. And that really should be a comforting idea because if I, me, if I can personally, perfectly understand and explain every word in this book about God, then God must not be that hard to comprehend. He must not be that big. He must not be that impressive. I mean, I, last week, had to double-check the owner's manual in my car to be able to replace the taillight because I couldn't figure out how to do it. I did it wrong. I was doing the wrong one in the wrong place with the wrong bulb. I had to reread that thing like five times. But if I then could come to every text of Scripture and say, this is exactly what it means, this is exactly who God is, to the fullness extent of all those things, then that means God is less impressive than my 2015 Hyundai Elantra owner's manual. And he's not. So I think it should be a little bit comforting whenever we come across something and go, I don't know what this means. I need to keep studying. I need to keep reading. I need to keep trying. It's okay that some things are hard. It's okay that some things are confusing. And you might not be right there with me in these verses as I tell you what I think they mean, and that's okay too. But let me try to explain what I think is happening here. And this is really a minority view. And I say that because they're all minority views. There is no majority view. There is not one thing that people say, yep, this is what this means, and then there's these wackos over here. No, there's, it, everyone looks like a wacko. It's like a Republican primary. There's not anyone who's like way out in front. There's like a dozen people that have 4%, and that's what these look like. So this interpretation is a minority because there isn't a majority, but here's what I think this verse is talking about. This, here's what I think this passage is talking about it's referring what's called the doctrine of the descent of Christ. D-E-S-C-E-N-T, descent of Christ. And the doctrine of the descent of Jesus Christ is how really we answer the question, where was Jesus on Saturday? When he was born and lived for 33 years, that's his incarnation. When he died, that's his crucifixion. When he rose, that's his resurrection. When he ascended to heaven, that's his ascension. But in between the period where he died... On Friday, Good Friday, and when he rose on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, we have Saturday. Where is Jesus on Saturday? Well, the descent helps us there, and it answers that question by saying, well, he was dead. And his death was just like the death of anyone else. The same things happened to him when he died that would have happened to anyone else when they died. So he died and he descended to the place where dead people are. He died on Good Friday and rose on Easter Sunday, but on Saturday, he was in the realm of the dead. He was where dead people are. Okay, that's what the Apostles' Creed is talking about, which you may have heard before. You may have heard that kind of phrase before, whenever it says, he descended into hell. Really, what's a better translation of that is he descended to the dead. It's not saying that Jesus continued suffering and that he went to hell and suffered there. It's not saying that. Rather, what it's saying is that he died the same death as the thief next to him. He died. His soul was separated from his body and went to the place, the realm of the dead. And in that place, that place of the dead, there are compartments. One for the righteous, dead, what we would call paradise, what we now oftentimes in shorthand refer to as heaven, the first heaven, Abraham's bosom, you see that in Luke, There's also a compartment for the unrighteous dead, what you would see in the Old Testament as Sheol or Hades, or in the New Testament, Gehenna, what we shorthand have hell. And while he was in the place of the dead, what he was doing there was proclaiming his victory over sin and death to everyone in that place, to the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. He wasn't preaching so that they would repent and believe if they hadn't already. This wasn't a second chance to believe what they hadn't believed in life. He simply went there because he was dead and said, hey, I've defeated sin and death. He told everyone there that he had won the victory over sin and death, even as he was there on Saturday. He was simply saying what he had done, the work that he had finished by defeating sin and death. He went there and proclaimed the fact that he had won the victory. In the words of Revelation, he snatched the keys of death and Hades, and he's telling them all about it in the descent. So he descended to the dead, but he didn't suffer there. He wasn't confined to hell, the place of the unrighteous dead, and he wasn't there giving people a second chance to believe. He was there for the victory party. He was there to tell everybody the work that he had done. To the joy of the righteous dead, And the shame of the unrighteous dead. And that is the doctrine of the descent. And I think that's what these verses are talking about. He was put to death in the flesh, the body, but in the spirit, he went to the place of the dead and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. So he's preaching to the spirits of the unrighteous dead that he has defeated sin and death, to the joy of the righteous dead and the shame of the unrighteous dead. Okay, and I fully understand I might have lost you in that. You might be confused. You might not agree with me. I get it. And though I could give more support and book recommendations, if you're interested in some other point, I could definitely do that. I know your eyes may have glazed over, and you might be wondering, hmm, why'd I come today? I could have skipped this week, come back next week, where we're not talking about the descent. I get it. But if I lost you, I need you to come back with me. Because here is why this is important in these verses. This is why I think Peter included these ideas. Because he is telling the people who are enduring suffering and are going to endure even more suffering that Jesus won, that he has defeated sin and death. He experienced the same death that anyone else would have experienced, but he wasn't beaten by it, he beat it through that death. He's won the victory. The gospel is a message of Christ's victory over sin and death. He did die like anyone else, but he was raised like no one else. And the message he has preached to those spirits in prison is the same one that we heard, the same one that we now get to preach that Jesus won, that he is king. And as Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 say, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth. And under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those with him in paradise, heaven, those here on this earth, and those in the realm of the dead will one day know and see who he is. And every knee will bow to him in that moment. Every tongue will confess his victory just as he has. He suffered, yes. He died, yes. But he won. And his gospel is a message of that victory over death. And finally, though the gospel is also a victory, a message of victory over death, it is also a message of imputed salvation. That's the third facet of the gospel message in today's text. It is a message of imputed salvation. Look at verses 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And here we come to the second sticky subject in today's verses. This one, honestly, in my mind, is way less complicated for us because it's surely dealing with concepts you've heard before. The descent to the dead, a lot of that was probably new information for you. Baptism... I don't think that's new information for you. I think you've got some kind of understanding whenever we come to these verses. I mean, we're Baptists. We have an idea of what baptism is and what it isn't. It's kind of our defining trait. But I just want to briefly explain what Peter means whenever he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Because if we're not careful, we'll forget that we actually don't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, and we don't. Or maybe we'll just remember that baptism doesn't save you and then just white out these verses in our Bible because it seems to say something different. Okay, we have to have an answer here. We have to be able to put all these things together here. So the this that baptism corresponds to is a situation back from verse 20 of Noah and his family being saved through the flood by being hidden safe in the ark back in Genesis 6. So baptism corresponds to this situation as a picture of you being saved through water. Noah and his family entered the water in the ark, but were brought safely through that water by the ark. And that's a similar picture to what we see in baptism. We're buried into the water and then brought safely through the water. We symbolically die to our former selves with Christ, in Christ, in his death, And then we're raised from the waters of death to new life with him and in him. But the sticky part here is that Peter says baptism now saves you. That's the translation of these verses. That's what they say. And we're Baptists, so baptism is a big deal to us. But we very clearly do not believe that baptism saves you. So either we're wrong, and I don't think we are. At least we'd have to change the name of our church if that were true. Or maybe Peter and the Bible is wrong, and that can't be true because then we're no longer a church, we're just people who get together to read an old book that's wrong, so that's not right. Or maybe we just have to keep reading to understand what he's saying here. He goes on that baptism saves, but not as a removal of dirt from the body. What he's saying, what he's introducing here is that he's not talking about the physical act of baptism as if that physical act saves you. Okay, the the physical act, you being immersed in water and brought back out of it, that theoretically would remove some dirt, as long as you do it right. But baptism isn't you washing your sins away, even though it is a symbol of that, You're not washing away your sins in baptism, though you might wash dirt from the body when you're immersed in the water. So, what he's saying here by saying baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, is he's saying don't focus on the physical act of baptism, but rather the symbol that is behind the act of baptism. Okay, baptism doesn't save you, but the symbol of baptism. That you have died to yourself with Christ, and you are now raised to new life in Him. That does save you, you having died to yourself in Christ and being raised to new life in Him and with Him. You're saved because you died with Christ, and your sin now, that you, your sin in the life you now live, has been taken away by Christ and been replaced with His righteousness. That is the gospel. You don't have your old dirt of sin on you anymore, but you've been washed clean and you've been given his new life. That's a picture of what happened in the ark, and it's a picture of what happens in baptism. And that's how you're saved. The thing that these other things are just symbolizing. So you're not saved because of your works, because of something you did, as if you were able to remove the dirt from your soul. You're not saved because you've somehow washed yourself clean You're saved by that which Christ has and has given to you, his righteousness. So I think that's way more what Peter's talking about here. And while I want to emphasize that, while I want to make sure you know that baptism doesn't save, let me also emphasize here the close connection that Peter makes between salvation and baptism. Okay, Salvation is salvation, and baptism is baptism. Baptism does not save you, and it's not formally required in order to be saved because salvation precedes baptism. Okay, We can logically differentiate between those things. We can say salvation is salvation, baptism is baptism, salvation comes first, baptism is a step of obedience after salvation. We can logically differentiate all those things, but Peter isn't doing that. He's not trying to emphasize the distinction between these things. He's trying to emphasize the connection between these things. We see that here in 1 Peter 3, I think, but we also see it back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It says this. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that was Peter's answer when someone asked him, What should they do in light of the gospel message? He had preached a sermon and they said, So now what? And he said, Repent and be baptized. Essentially, he was answering the question, how do I get saved? And his answer was, repent and be baptized. Okay, if that verse were all you had, if 1 Peter 3.21 were all you had, then you would think that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation, right? But Peter's not wrong in his theology. He's just approaching the idea differently than we do. He's not focused on the distinctions that we sometimes are. We sometimes get so focused on exceptions to the rule that we forget what the rule typically is, what it normally is. We keep trying to think through special cases of what if someone becomes a Christian but on their their way up the baptism steps, they slip and fall, they break their neck and they die. Are they a Christian? Are they in heaven? Well, yeah, they are saved because salvation isn't baptism. But I don't know if that's ever actually happened. So do we need to make that kind of distinction? Who are we helping by making that kind of distinction? I think it's a good question to ask. Baptism is not salvation. But they are very closely tied. Peter's not worried about the special cases. He's not worried about the exceptions to the rule. He's not worried about our logical differentiation between these things. He is saying that salvation and baptism are so closely linked... That whoever is saved will be baptized. Because that's what saved people do. That's how you profess to being a Christian. It's not by raising your hand when someone says, who would like to become a Christian tonight? It's not by you walking an aisle when someone asks, would you like to come forward? It's not by you just saying, I'm a Christian now. It's by you being baptized into the church. That's the way that you tell people that you are a Christian. That's the way that you show that you are a Christian. That's the way that you profess to what Christ has done in you internally by that external act. It's supposed to be the proof of saving faith. So he now, Peter, can use baptism as a shorthand for salvation in the same sense that I might say that someone raced in the Daytona 500 to tell you that they're a NASCAR driver. I mean, you wouldn't race in a Daytona 500 unless you were a NASCAR driver. And every NASCAR driver should race in a Daytona 500. It's the first race. It's the first one of the whole season. I mean, could you technically be a NASCAR driver without racing in a Daytona 500? I think so. But why would you? That's that's what NASCAR drivers do. They race, particularly in the first one, where a lot of people would say is the biggest one. It wouldn't make any sense not to. And eventually, if you keep not racing, if you just never show up for a race, but keep saying that you're a NASCAR driver, eventually I go, I don't think you are. Because NASCAR drivers, they they race. By definition, they drive in NASCAR. So if you never actually do that, why would I ever believe you whenever you say a NASCAR driver? If you and me have raced in the exact same number of NASCAR races, zero, then I'm just as much of a NASCAR driver as you are. And I think it's the same situation with baptism in the Christian. So to follow Peter in these verses, he's saying that you're baptized as an appeal to God for him to wash you clean based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying that baptism is the outward evidence of the appeal that you've already made inwardly that God would, based on His life, death, and resurrection, give you the righteousness, the good conscience of Jesus Christ. That's what He says when He continues there. Baptism, which saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Saying, no, 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 it's not you doing the work and asking God to save you. It's you showing that He saved you by what you've done, and that you are pleading, you are begging God based on what Jesus Christ has done, that he might save you through that. Baptism, the act, does not save you. But the reason you're being baptized, that is what saves you. It's the picture and the symbolism behind it. This is just you going public and showing everyone that you're identified with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. That's the the point that Paul makes in Romans 6, 4 is along those same lines. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's saying that when you're baptized, you're showing that you're identified with Christ such that what He has and has done is now yours and what you've done in Him. You pass into the waters of death, you're buried with Him, so that just as He was raised from the waters of death by the glory of the Father, you might also be raised with Him to walk in newness of life. That's why you'll often hear where people are baptized. That's what I say whenever people are baptized. That's the verse that gets quoted. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So the stickiness of Peter's point aside, here's why he's saying what he's saying. He's saying our gospel, that which we believe and that which has saved us, is a message of imputed righteousness, of imputed salvation. And that word imputed just means given to you. It's a message of righteousness that was handed to you, a salvation that was given to you. It was outside of you, the righteousness, it was Christ's, but now it's been given and applied to you. And baptism is the evidence of that salvation that you've received. And he says that to us so that we'll know that our salvation is secure because our salvation is based on Christ's work, which is finished. Look what Peter says about Christ in closing this section verse 22 Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him Your righteousness it isn't found in yourself it's not found in what you did yesterday it's not found in what you're doing today or what you will do tomorrow It's found in heaven with Christ It's found at the right hand of God, even now. It's found in the highest of places, the holiest of holies, over and above all things, because all things, angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. That's why this idea of our gospel as a message of imputed salvation should be such a glorious encouragement to us. I mean, it doesn't get any better than the righteousness that we've got. It doesn't get any higher than the one who gave it to us. It doesn't get any further up the chain than the one who has declared us to have his own righteousness and his own perfection. So now for these people who are enduring suffering, for these people for whom that's about to get worse, he is reminding them fairly straightforwardly of the gospel's message so that they might be able to make it through, to persevere. Because the gospel is what they need to be able to do that. The only way that we might not repay evil with evil is to remember the gospel is a message of righteous suffering. The only way to persevere in the face of death is because Christ has won the victory over death. And the only way to be righteous when we're surrounded by the unrighteous is to have the righteousness of Christ given to us and secure for us. That's why Peter is saying all these things. He's preparing us for when it gets hard by reminding us what the gospel says. Our gospel is a glorious message of good news for all who believe in it. It's a message of righteous suffering. So we shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon us. But most gloriously of all, it is the message of His righteous suffering, which has saved me, the unrighteous persecutor. It's a message of victory over death. So we shouldn't be surprised when pain and death arise in the Christian life. But most gloriously of all, it is the message that Christ has defeated sin and death. He's gone to the place of death. He's laughed in death's face, letting all in heaven and earth and under the earth know that he has won the victory. And he won it for people like us, who through our sin caused death, and because of our sin were headed for death. Our gospel is a message of imputed righteousness, so we shouldn't be surprised that we're not able to be righteous in ourselves. We shouldn't be surprised by our inability to be perfect before or after salvation. But most gloriously of all, it is the message that all the righteous we could ever need has been given to us in him. He suffered once for sins to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit to proclaim his victory over death, to pass through its waters and bring us back to life with him. He has risen and he has given us the faith to appeal to God for a good conscience based on his work. And he is now seated at the right hand of God with all things subjected to him. That's our gospel. That's our good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you most of all for this gospel through which we're saved. Thank you for the perseverance you give your people to be able to endure through whatever suffering you might have planned for us. Thank you for the example of Christ who suffered the righteous for the unrighteous to save us, to bring us to you, and also to give us an example. Thank you for the victory that he has won over sin and death, the victory that he has now given to us over our sin and our death. Thank you for your righteousness which has been given to us. We didn't have any of our own to speak of, but in you, we have all that we need and more than enough. Thank you for this message, this gospel, this good news. Help for us to believe in it, to trust in it, to hope in it, and to live our lives in light of it. Spread this message to everyone we come into contact with. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.